Our guest this morning on this extended version of the Saturday Morning Jukebox had 11 top 40 hits, a dozen more on the country charts, an absolute string of gold records and awards, and he has performed in front of more than 2 billion spectators. It's our immense pleasure to welcome to the Jukebox Mr. Bobby Goldsboro. Hello there. <laughs> Fantastic having you on here, uh, Bobby. Well, you, Thank you. you were born in Florida, but you didn't live there very long. You moved on to uh, Dothan, Alabama when you were just uh, probably an infant, didn't you? Well, I was actually I was in Mariana for about the first 15 years of my life. Oh, then I I'm moved sorry. into moved to Dothan, Alabama. My my brother and my parents, we all moved up there and stayed until I graduated from high school and then I went to went to Auburn for a couple of years. I, I know that, you know, obviously music's been a passion of yours, but you had another passion that you share with Rick and I, and that is baseball. Uh, you were, uh, one of your dreams was to, to be, uh, be a, a Major League Baseball player. Yeah, that's what I just, uh, that's all I focused on for about the first 16 years of my life, and then it finally dawned on me one day there aren't too many Major League players who are 5'8 and weigh about 128 pounds, and that's... that's that's about what I weighed when I was in high school, and uh, I've, I've just now finally reached the 150-pound mark. I'm about 152, so I'm, and there aren't too many 152-pounders in major leagues right now, so uh, I don't think it was a good choice. Was there a team that you, you, you particularly followed uh, growing up as a, as a youngster? Yeah, but for some reason I liked the Cleveland Indians, and I, when I think back on it, I think maybe it was uh, their uh, – their logo, their mascot, the little Indian. I liked Cowboys and Indians back then when I was growing up. But uh, I just followed the Cleveland Indians, and then they won the pennant in '48, and again in '54. And I've just, I've just, I used to, I still, still look at box scores and and uh, things like that. And I, in fact, I think baseball probably helped me through school as far as math and things because I was keeping up with it so much that I was doing bat, batting averages and figuring out to four percentage points in my head and things like that. Uh, Keeping up with batting averages, and uh, I would—I even played a baseball game called the Red Barber Big League Baseball game that had three dice with it, and every combination from one 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 to six six six, anything in between there. They had all these different configurations on this board. Well, I ended up memorizing the combinations, so I could take three little dice with me and play this baseball game in the back of the seat of the car, and I could—because I, I, I knew every possibility. And uh, so that—that's the kind of thing that, that I think helped me out in school was was loving baseball so much. He sounds a lot like you, John. I know. Yeah, I had uh, Stratomatic was my game as a kid. We had uh, had uh, you know the, the regular baseball players and make the lineups and stuff like that. So yeah, yeah, yeah we're, we're kind of brothers in baseball there, Bobby. <laughs> I know what you're what you what you're going through there, Bobby. When was it that you first picked up a guitar? I was uh, well, actually, I was in, still living in Mariana, and uh, a kid down the street got a ukulele for Christmas, and I walked in there, to, went down to see what he had gotten for. Christmas that morning, and uh, he had this little uke- ukulele and had a little Arthur Godfrey uke player on it, a little plastic thing that had like five different buttons, and you would push the button, and it had a little songbook with it, and it said, you know, when you're, when you just play, push this button and 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 sing, and then when you got time to change, it would go to, it had like a C, a D, it had I think five different chords, so. He went to eat breakfast with his parents, and I was sitting in there, and I picked that thing up, and, I, and the first song I saw was "Are You from Dixie." And I said, so I sat there and I looked at the little buttons and I started playing "Are You from Dixie" and went through the whole song. And at the end, it was "Are you?" Well, I'm from Dixie too. Boom! And I looked around, and his parents and him and this guy were standing there. And, and I remember his mother said, "Well, Bobby, I didn't know you could play one of those things." And I said, "I didn't either." <laughs> so, so I I had played this song just looking at the. And he ended up giving me the ukulele because he couldn't play it. 
and I took it home and, and took the little the little player off to see what it was doing under there, which strings it was mashing, and that's how I learned those first five chords. And I played the ukulele for about a year or two, and I finally got a guitar when I was in the 11th grade of, of uh, high school. Now, was your family uh, musical uh, musically inclined, Bobby? Well, my mother could, my, and I, in fact, my brother took piano lessons. He was a year and a half older than me, and he took piano lessons, and he can read music, but he couldn't play by ear. And I've never, to this day, I still can't read music. I've All the songs I've come up with, I've just come up with in my head, and I get the, but the thing is, when I write a song, it's I, I, I hear all the violin parts and the voice parts and all of what I want the bass line to do and the horns and the strings and things like that, so... Uh, I think it actually helped me not reading music because I tried some things that I might not have tried had I known uh, more about music. <laughs> I would have said, well, that's not supposed to work because sometimes things work that aren't supposed to. You mentioned you went to uh, Auburn University. What was your first career path going to be, Bobby? I had no idea. I went. My brother was uh, two years ahead of me in school, and he was already at Auburn, and he was in business administration, which uh, I, I, I said, well, I don't know what to get in up there so that's what i got into and i was playing uh the little band i was in we were playing the fraternities and sororities every weekend and we were making good money so i thought well this is a heck of a way to make a living going out and playing music and getting paid for it so uh during the summer of my second year we got a call from a promoter who had booked roy orbison in the area for four nights and he had just fired his band because he found out they were drinking and all that and he didn't allow that so he didn't have a band for these four dates and we were asked it wasn't that we were that good. We were just the only band around that area. So we were we were hired to back Roy for four nights, and we learned his songs as best four guys could, trying to duplicate those big violin parts and all that stuff. And there were no synthesizers in that time, you know. So anyway, he liked us, and we, we just hit it off. Roy and I, after a, two or three nights, we were like old friends, like brothers or something. So he asked us if we'd like to go on the road as his band, and we became the Roy Orbison band, and I never went back to school. I'll tell you what, I mean, that must, uh, just as a kid, I mean, uh, you know, you must have been like gobsmacked. All of a sudden, it's not like you're playing for Joe Smith and the, you know, the, the Rowdy Bunch. All of a sudden, you got, you're in Roy Orbison's band. Did you have I'll to pitch you, yourself? I was, I was dumbfounded when, when I got the call. <laughs> they said, uh, Roy Orbison's coming through the area, and he needs a band. Can you guys back him? And I thought, I must just like, uh, in shock, I'm thinking Roy Orbison. We can we can play on the stage with him, you know. And next thing you know, we're his band, and we're traveling all over the country. And I got, in fact, I was with Roy for gosh two and a half years, and uh, we were like brothers. And uh, I traveled to England and with him, and did the Beatles tour, and and uh, just had one all over the all over the world with him. So it was a great introduction to me for the in the music business and the record business, and being and getting up in front of thousands of people. I was just playing guitar for him, but I got used to getting up in front of people like that, so it would really help. Roy probably did more for me than anybody. Yeah, and, you know, to kind of explain to our audience, too, uh, Bobby, we're talking with Bobby Goldsboro here. When you're in England with Roy Orbison and you're touring with the Beatles, I mean, Roy is the uh, the headline act. The Beatles have, have yet to have their day. They're up and coming, but uh, that had to be kind of an interesting uh, situation. Talk to us about, you know, th- those guys. I mean, did you know right away that there was something special and these guys are going to take off? Well, I'll tell you, when they booked the tour, when, when Roy told me about the tour, he said, and there's a, uh, he started naming the people on, it was Jerry and the Pacemakers and uh, several other people that were going to be on the show on this tour, two-week tour, and he said, in this new group called the Beatles, and they're really getting hot over there, and, and this was booked uh, several months in advance. Well, by the time we got there, the Beatles had overnight become the biggest thing in England, and they were just, they hadn't quite hit over here yet, they were about to, they hadn't done the Ed Sullivan show or anything, but... When we got over there, it was like pandemonium everywhere we went, and uh, 
So the promoter didn't know, at first he said he didn't know how, how to close the show. Should Orbison close or should the Beatles close? Because the Beatles were the hottest thing going, but Roy had never appeared there, and he was the biggest, next to Presley, he was the largest selling American singer. So they finally decided to let Roy close the first show of the uh, first half of the show, and then the Beatles would close the second half. And the place just was going nuts from the beginning of the show till the end, and uh, but but they wouldn't they would Roy as much as they wanted to see the Beatles Roy would do two and three encores every night and then the Beatles would come on and kill everybody so it was just it was by far the most successful tour in the history of England at the time there are now bigger venues to play in uh, in much bigger tours but at the time it was the biggest thing that they'd ever seen over there. Obviously, we're talking about the early '60s. What was the travel itself like? Were you traveling rather in style because Roy was a big name? Or, or was it ramshackle buses and those kinds we were, of stories we hear? We never, had, we never had a bus. We traveled in a 55 Chevy pulling a U-Haulet trailer. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Roy would fly to the dates, and we'd meet. That's how we, when we first started with him, we had that's all, one of the guys in the band had a 55 Chevy, and we'd just get our U-Haul, and we'd head out. In, the, in fact, the first place we played was in Seattle, Washington. We drove from Nashville to Seattle in, in December, and they had some roads closed. There was blizzards up there, and we thought, and we nearly froze to death a couple of times. The heater tore up on the car, and the whole time we're thinking, hey, man, we're on the road. This is rock and roll. We're cool. <laughs> you know? we, we didn't have sense enough to know we were about to die, you know. Yeah. But uh, after a while, I got to, Roy and I became so close that he would, and Roy didn't have any, he didn't have a road manager with him and all that. So he, he had, I started traveling with him and started getting to fly. I'd never been on a plane until I got with Orbison. And uh, we'd fly to different dates and the band would meet us. And I thought, boy, I'm really living high on the hog here. I'm, I'm finally getting to fly and they're still having to drive in the 55 Chevy. But uh, it was a, it was a great time. And uh, and Roy was just such a great guy to be with. And I learned so much from him. You mentioned too, that you'd played on a bill with folks like Jerry and the Pacemakers. Who were some of the other notable artists and folks? that you became good friends with well and when i after i finally came in fact after the beatles tour i came back and my record had come see the funny little clown had come mm-hmm. on the national charts and i sat down with roy one night till three in the morning over in england and i said they want me to come over and start doing these rock and roll shows or all you know there was a different show in every city at, at the time and uh, where the action is and uh, lloyd thaxton and american bandstand all these shows were on and they were wanting me to come back to promote my new record and i was nervous about doing it because i'm thinking i'm you know i'll be out there instead of roy i'm but right now they're not looking at me you know they're looking at roy so he he said why don't you get back go back uh, after the tour go back and give it a shot and see how you like it as a as a single performer and if you don't like it you can always come back and play guitar for me so i came back and gave it a shot and i got to, and i started one of the first tours i did was with uh, bj thomas and gene pitney and Brian Hyland and uh, guys like that, and we got to be good friends. And uh, in fact, I recently did a thing up in St. Louis uh, this this past year for PBS, and BJ was on the show, and Ray Stevens, who, in fact, a lot of people don't know, Ray Stevens is singing harmony with me on mm. Little Things and It's Too Late and uh, several things. Uh, back when I first started recording, Ray came over and sang harmony with me. So he, guys like that are old friends, and uh, I got to meet quite a few people over the years, and it's uh, that was one of the great things about being a singer is getting to work with so many great entertainers. And I got to think, Bobby, you know, just there was such a feeling of community back then from when I've talked to the, the folks before that were involved, especially in, in music in the 50s and, and, and 60s. And, and you mentioned some names there. So, I'm, you know, when, when their careers take off, you're, you're probably partying with them and just as happy that, that they're finding success as they are with, with, with you having the success, right? 
Oh, it was great. I, 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 I was. Uh, I remember doing an interview, and uh, BJ and I had just finished doing something. We were pretty close, and I said, if my record went to number two and didn't make it to number one because BJ had the number one record, I, it wouldn't bother me at all. I think that's great because he's just BJ, you know, or Gene Pitney, these guys that I got to know real well, and uh, that's why. And, and the only, the great thing about that time was that. You weren't out by yourself doing immediately when you got a hit record. It wasn't all choreographed, and, and uh, you had a band and lighting and uh, and all of this stuff like it is now. You would you would do a bus tour with you know ten or twelve guys on there, and you'd only get do three or four songs a show. But that way you're traveling together all day long, and you get to know people and and uh, just have a big time. And those were some of the best times of my whole career with those bus tours. We're talking with Bobby Goldsboro. You mentioned "See the Funny Little Clown" uh, uh, was a top ten hit for you. Is that one of your originals? Uh, one that you penned yourself, Bobby? Yeah, I actually wrote that. Uh, I was at my parents' home in Dothan, Alabama, and my producer, the guy who had signed me up in New York, had sent me three songs. And he said, "Learn these songs. I'm going to bring you to New York." To record you and i'm thinking new york wow i've never been to new york you know and uh so i listened to the songs and and again i was i'm thinking well i he knows more about music than i do but i just don't think any of these three songs is a hit so i said i think i could write something that good so i sat down and i wrote this song in about 30 or 45 minutes i wrote see the funny little clown and uh when we went to record i played it for him for him and the arranger and i said and he said well a nice song if we have time we'll do it on the session because back then you would record for three hours and try to get three or four songs in the three-hour session and uh we only had 15 minutes left so i said well can we try this try to see the funny little clown he said okay let's let's try that one so we cut it twice and uh the second take by the end of the second take it was this it was nine o'clock at night and it was time to the session was over and that was the one that became the first big top ten record see I ever had. See funny little clown, see him laughing as you walk by. Everybody thinks he's happy cause you never see a tear in his eye. No one knows he's crying. No one knows he's dying on the inside Cause he's laughing on the outside mm, No one knows No one knows See the funny little clown He's hiding behind a smile they all think he's laughing, but I know he's really crying all the while. How his heart is aching, how his heart is breaking on the inside. But he keeps laughing on the outside, mm, no one knows. No one knows This funny little clown You never used to see him around Without his girl beside him To love and guide him Until one day His girl just walked away this very day He says he never loved her Anyway mm, 
back i think i'm not sure of the order here but what one song that i i've always really enjoyed I, obviously funny little clown but also a song called uh, little things and if you listen to that you hear kind of the roy orbison influence in that don't you you really do in fact i was uh that's because i roy came out with pretty woman mm-hmm. and i had written little things i just completed it and but i had a, like a two four beat to it and when i heard the four four on on Pretty Woman, I called Roy and I said, man, I love this record. I said, I've got a song that I'm about to record, and I'm going to put that 4-4 beat to it. I love what what you did on there. And he says, be my guest. You know, that's great. So had he not written that, it would have probably, little things may have come out different. Little things that you do make me glad I'm in love with you. Little things that you say make me glad. That I feel this way The way you smile The way you hold my hand And when I'm down You always understand You know I love those little things In my ear That you say When there's no one here Little things That you do Let me know that your love is true when we walk You like to hold my hand And when we talk You tell me I'm your man You know I love those little things that I hear The little things you whisper in my ear I know there ain't nobody else like you No one could do the little Make me glad I'm in love with you Little things that you say Make me glad that I feel this way When we walk You like to hold my hand And when we talk You tell me I'm your man You know I love those little things in my ear I know there ain't nobody else like you No one could do the little things you do uh, In 1965 you do a song that we like as well around here it's called Broomstick Cowboy and when you when you play it it sounds like it might be uh, you know typical of, of the time maybe an, an anti-war song but you said that was not necessarily the case and I know you ran into some controversy with that song didn't you? Yeah, there were a lot of uh, there were so many there were a lot of protest songs out at the time when I came out with this, and I had just written this as a poem about my little boy who was less than a year old, and I watched looked at him laying in a bed asleep one night and thought about well he's going to have to grow up, and it was right in the middle of Vietnam War was going on, and I said well, I hope that's all over with when he 
grows up, but it's always been like that. It probably there will probably be something else going on. So that that gave me an idea for it, and I actually just wrote it as a poem and and didn't do anything with it for about a year. And then I came across it, and I decided to put a melody to it, and I played it for my producer, and he loved it. And so we went in and cut it. And funny thing, I've done it three different three different ways. I've done it just with a guitar. I've done it with the with the original cut, and then I did it with a with a whole string section and nothing else which I think was the best cut of it because you hear the lyrics the best that way and it has more impact. But the thing is, when it record came out, ABC Network would not play the record. They said, we're not playing any more protest songs, more protest songs. I said, well, this is not really, this is kind of maybe protesting growing up, but it's not <laughs> protesting the war. It's saying you got to go fight for your country. You know, mm-hmm. if, if your country goes to war, you got to go fight for it. But they didn't, they didn't hear it that way. So I, I went out to do American Bandstand, and Dick Clark said, I think this is the best record you've ever cut, and I, they won't let me play it. So you're going to have to do the flip side. So I had to do the flip side of Broomstick Cowboy on American Bandstand. Dream on, little Broomstick Cowboy. Of rocket ships and Mars Of sunny days and Willie Mays And chocolate candy bars Dream on, little broomstick cowboy Dream while you can Of big green frogs and puppy dogs And castles in the sand For all too soon you'll awaken Your toys will all be gone Your broomstick horse will ride away To find another home And you'll have grown into a man With cowboys of your own And then you'll have to go to war Try and save your home And then you'll have to learn to hate You'll have to learn to kill It's always been that way, my son I guess it always will No broomstick gun they'll hand you No longer you'll pretend You'll call some man your enemy You used to call him friend And when the rockets thunder You'll hear your brothers cry And through it all you'll wonder Just why they had to die So dream on Little broomstick cowboy Dream while you can For soon you'll be A dreadful thing My son You'll be a man the song really, I think, that, that must have changed your life uh, 1968 a year, Honey, uh, comes about Tell us the story of that song Well, Bobby Russell was the writer of that song And uh, he, was, he, he also wrote Little Green Apples He was a a great guy and a friend of mine in Nashville, and he had played some songs for me um, a while back, and, and I was about to do an album. So we called him and had him come up and play some, said, do you have anything new? And he and I had heard there was already a record out, just about to come out, by Bob Shane on Honey. And so Bobby Russell came up and played two or three songs, and I said, well, these are kind of teeny bopper songs. Don't you have anything more like, uh, what about like the thing that you just did with 
Bob Shane. What was that? Isn't it called Honey or something? He said, well, that's coming out next week by him. And I said, well, play that for us. Well, he played the song just with the guitar, and it just floored us. And we said, well, we we can cut it at least for the album. He said, yeah, but you can't cut a single, cut it for a single because the Bob Shane record comes out next week. So we went in and recorded it a few days later. And after the very first take, we went in to listen to the playback, and some of the violin players in the session musicians got up and came to listen to the playback and i had never seen them do See that the tree, how big it's grown but friend it hasn't been too long it wasn't big i laughed at her and she got mad the first day that she planted it was just a twig then the first snow came and she ran out to brush the snow away so it wouldn't die Came running in, all excited Slipped and almost hurt herself And I laughed till I cried She was always young at heart Kinda dumb and kinda smart And I loved her so And I surprised her with a puppy Kept me up all Christmas Eve Two years ago And it would sure embarrass her When I came in from working late Cause I would know That she'd been sitting there and crying Over some sad and silly late, late show And honey, I miss you And I'm being good And I'd love to be with you If only I could She wrecked the car and she was sad And so afraid that I'd be mad But what the heck Though I pretended hard to be Guess you could say she saw through me I came home unexpectedly and caught her crying needlessly in the middle of the day. And it was in the early spring when flowers bloom and robins sing, she went away. And honey, I miss you. And I'm being good. I'd love to be with you If only I could One day while I was not at home While she was there and all alone Angels came Now all I have are memories of honey And I wake up nights and call her name empty stage where honey lived and honey played and love grew up and a small cloud passes overhead and cries down on the flower bed honey love and see the tree how big it's grown but friend it hasn't been too long it wasn't big 
God just knew we had something special, so we said, well, let's go cut it again, do it better. We went out and cut it the second time, and it sounded just like the first one. And so we, so we called Bobby Russell from the studio and said, I think we just cut a, a number one record here. It's, what can we do? And he said, well, why don't you give us two, rec- two, two weeks with the Bob Shane record, and if nothing happens, then you can come out with yours. Well, we waited two weeks. The record company loved it, too, so they pressed the records up and waited a full two weeks before they released it. They didn't have to. Once the record was out, they could cover it. But, you know, for respect, out of respect for Bobby, we didn't do it. And uh, I, I, I was just fortunate that mine hit instead of Bob Shane's. And I think had you put me singing on his record and him singing on mine, he would have had to hit because it was the arrangement that was such, it had so much to do with it. So... I was I was very fortunate to get that one, and that was such such a monster hit, not only in this country but but worldwide, and it took off. And uh, is that the one? I mean, you've had some hits before that, as we talked about, but is that the one that just really changed your life and really uh, made you an international star? Well, I think so because the main thing was it got me a lot of television exposure that I'd never gotten before, mm-hmm. talk shows and things like that. Because it was a it was a song that adults as well as teenagers liked the song, and. Before that, I had been doing American Bandstand and Where the Action Is, shows like that, but I had never done The Tonight Show and Mike Douglas, Merv Griffin, Dinah Shore, uh, David Frost, uh, Dick Cavett, shows like that. And there were so many talk shows out at the time, and Merv Griffin is another one. Uh, I started doing all those talk shows, and and it got a lot of exposure to audiences I had never had before. So I think things like that help you with your career as much as your recording. They help with a the, with the career and to, to have people come to concerts and get to know more about you when you can go on and talk and tell stories and things like that. So Honey was the thing that opened opened so many doors for me. Honey was the thing that opened opened so many doors for me. And it also really uh, helped ish, uh, usher you into maybe a, a crossover artist uh, into the, the country field because that hit in the, in the country charts as well. And I'm thinking, you yeah. know, b- back at the time, Glenn Campbell's going big and, and he's crossing over a lot as well. So you guys are are kind of meshing uh, pop music with country music, aren't you? Yeah, it's funny. I I was uh, even living in Nashville, but I had never really been, I'd never been played on country stations because what I was doing was pretty much pop music, rock and roll, and all that when I started out. But Honey uh, went to number one on the country charts as well, and I was like a brand new country artist as far as country music people were concerned. So uh, from then on, everything I would record got played on the country station. So I was. And I, I loved it. I mean, it was uh, I had never <laughs> even uh, dreamed of, of being played on, on across the board like that. So uh, it was a it was a great experience, a great thrill for me. And I think it, uh, you know, people like Glenn and, and, and songs, records like Honey kind of did open the door to, to getting uh, country radio to play things that were a little more pop. And also a lot of pop stations started playing things that had they might have considered too country before. And one thing, you know, Rick and I are a product, as you are, of, uh, you know, Top 40 AM radio. We talked with Tommy James about this not too long ago, and also your friend B.J. Thomas about how mm-hmm. back in the day, everything was played on, on AM Top 40. You'd go from Frank Sinatra, and then there'd be a, a Beatles song, and then there'd be a Bobby Goldsboro song. There, there, music just wasn't so tightly formatted back then, was it? Yeah, and that's, that's the, that was why, to me, I don't think there'll ever be as good a time for radio as there was d- during the 60s and 70s, and, and because... Because of that very reason. I mean, when I can, when I would hear an Andy Williams and, the, and then then a, a Lawrence Welk and then Rolling Stones right after that, I mean, you, that's that's. <laughs> I mean, that's just about, about as far uh, opposites as you can get. And uh, and and I thought it was great because I it didn't. In fact, that's the reason that growing up and and even my recording, uh, it was 
pretty diversified. I, I grew up in one in Mariana, Florida. With they had one radio station, and they played everything. And when I was growing up, I didn't know there was a difference. And I would hear a Hank Williams song, then I would hear a, a gospel song, and then I would hear a, a, a classical song, and then a, something a big band thing, you know. And I didn't know there was any difference. I just thought it was all music, and I didn't think one had to, was t- totally different from the other one, you know. And uh, I think that helped me in my writing also. So. It, it's a shame that it has gone to has become so formatted, but uh, that's that's progress, I guess. Uh, then another a monster hit that you almost followed that uh, honey up with uh, was a song called "Watching Scotty Grow." Not one of your own compositions, but a, a friend of yours who turned into a friend of yours, obviously Mac Davis. Now, did you and Mac know each other before uh, watching Scotty Grow? No, we didn't. I, in fact, I was once again. I've I've just been very blessed over my career to be at the right place at the right time, like with Honey and then and then watching Scotty Grow. I was in a clothing store in L.A. buying a shirt, <laughs> and I looked across the store, and I saw a, a guy that I knew, Jerry Fuller, who was a record producer. Jerry had a big hit back in the, I think, the late 50s, but uh, Jerry was producing Andy Williams and a lot of different people, and uh, so I saw him when we started talking. He said, I was just talking about you last week. Uh, Do you know Mac Davis? I said, well, I know who he is. I've never met him. He said, well, Mac pitched a song to me for Andy Williams called Watching Scotty Grow, and I thought, I said, I just didn't think the song was right for Andy, and I said, that would be a good Bobby Goldsboro song. He said, you ought to give Mac a call, and he gave me Mac's phone number. So I, call, I, so I called Mac, and he came over to the hotel that afternoon, and we sat there playing songs for four hours. With you know, He'd play one, I'd play one, and I finally said, well, play this song that Jerry told me about, Watch It's Gotta Go. He played it for me, and I loved it, and came back and recorded it. So had I not been buying a shirt that day, I wouldn't have recorded this song. There he sits with a pen and a yellow pad. What a handsome lad, that's my boy. B-R-L-F-Q spells mom and dad. Well, that ain't too bad, cause that's my boy. Well, you can have your TV and your nightclubs. And you can have your driving picture show. I'll stay here with my little man near. We'll listen to the radio. Bide my time and watching Scotty grow. Making a castle out of building blocks. And a cardboard box. That's my boy. Mickey Mouse says it's 13 o'clock. Well, that's quite a shock, but that's my boy. In four short years, I've gone from rags to riches. And what I did before that, I don't know. So let it rain on my window pane. I got my own rainbow. And we're sitting here shining, watching Scotty grow. Riding on daddy's shoulders off to bed Old sleepy head, that's my boy Gotta have a drink of water and a story read A teddy bear named Fred, that's my boy What's that you say, mama, come on and keep your feet warm Well, save me a place, I'll be there in a minute or so I think I'll stay right here and say a little prayer before I go. Me and God are watching Scotty grow.
Me and God are watching Scotty grow. And of course, it was just a mega hit, and it was beloved everywhere that it was heard. But it must not have taken long for you, as much as you enjoyed the success of the song, probably didn't take long for you to tire of people assuming that Scotty was your offspring, asking you how he was doing every time they met you. They still do it. <laughs> I, everywhere I go, and I, I'll always, in fact, even on stage, I tell, I tell about, I tell that Mac wrote the song. I always gave him credit for it, and I said uh, that because I had the hit with it, Mac's son still thinks that I'm his father. But, <laughs> and you and but, Mac, uh, and I think, in fact, I think Mac, Mac does that on stage too when he does it. So it's, uh, it's funny, but uh, it, it was a, it was a one of those things that again. Just came, I just happened to be at the right place at the right time, and it was the perfect song for me to do, you know. And and I I can't picture Andy Williams doing this song. No, no it's like I don't. I can't picture me doing Moon River like he did. So that's that's uh, songs just. Uh, have a way of finding the right person to do them, I think. And you and Mac had to turn into kind of like two peas in a pod. I mean, you guys both, uh, you know, can can write a write a tune at the drop of a hat. I know he had a successful television show, as you did eventually yourself. And, uh, I mean, you guys must have hit it off right away, didn't you? We did. And Mac, Mac he's still a, a good friend. It's, the thing is, in this in this business, you can have guys that are, I consider BJ and Ray Stevens, guys like that, just my dear close friends. But I rarely speak to them, you know, and that's just because of the business. They're always traveling. I'm always traveling, and we we don't meet up with each other. That's why it was such a great thing in this past year up in St. Louis for the PBS special. It was like old home week. We were sitting in that we were just dying laughing. We were almost all hoarse before the show because we were telling stories, old old road stories. So <laughs> it's uh, it. I think once you meet somebody, if they're they're good people, like like all these guys and Mac and all that, you you stay friends forever, even if you don't talk to them very often. One of your favorite songs. Once you really you, your career kind of took a a country path, at least radio play wise. You pretty much uh, they really picked up on you and took off. One of my dear favorite songs was a song called uh, California. Of wine, and I listened to that again the other day, and getting ready for this interview, and just the chord mm-hmm. changes and and the different uh, you know musical instruments coming in at different times. I mean, that was just a a phenomenal song. A lot happened. That's a busy song in what uh, three three and a half minutes. <laughs> it is. There's a lot going on in it, and that was that was one of the few that I got to finally get all the the licks in that I was hearing in my head. It was it's hard, always kind of hard to explain exactly what I hear in my head, and that was one that got ended up pretty close to what I had heard when I wrote it. And the only other one that, that uh, was perfectly what I heard in my head, I, exactly the way I heard it, was Summer the First Time. Mm-hmm. And that's that's uh, those are the two that kind of stand out, Summer the First Time and California Wine, because all the others, I got close to what I was hearing in my head, but sometimes you just, uh, you know, you may change something at the last minute, and after you let, listen to the playback, after everybody's gone, you say, oh, I wish we'd have done so-and-so or tried this and that. But California Wine, I was happy with the way it, it all ended up. In fact, going back to the not reading music thing, and I don't want to tell too many long stories here and run out of time. No, but, you're fine. Uh, at the recording session, I wanted this bass note to slide all the way up to a certain note, the bass to go up to this certain note, and I wanted the violins to hold on a certain note. And the arranger said, well, that's not going to work. I said, what do you mean it won't work? He says, well, that's, musically that won't work. Those, those notes will clash. And I, there was, I mean, Arturo Toscanini could have told me it wouldn't work, and I would have said, yes, it will, because I knew it was going to work because I heard it in my head. And uh-huh. so musically, had I, had I known all about music, I would have never tried that. Finally, I went out, and I said, well, can we try it? So he goes out to the, uh, to the musicians. He said, 
to the string section. I want you to play this, I don't know what, a B-flat augmented ninth or whatever the note was. <laughs> and then the bass player says it was going to slide up to a certain note. And the lead violinist said, well, that's not going to work. And he said, I know, but he wants to hear it. So he says, one, two, three, and boom, they hit it. And it sounded great. And and the violinist turned and said, well, I would have never thought that would have worked, but that sounds good. <laughs> and I, it, it didn't surprise me because I couldn't hear it in my head. I knew it would work. There's no way it couldn't work. I mean, I guess if you played them in different registers, maybe it wouldn't have worked. But it did. The way on a cold done. December day, I saw her on the highway. I said, I'm headed west. She said, you're going my way. Then she got in with me. Somewhere in Tennessee She snuggled up close to me She kissed me and then she said I want you to take me to the California line She said I've got to get back Where the bright sun shines And then she turned my head around Like California wine She thumbed all day From Wheeling, West Virginia She said I'll make a trade For all the love that's in ya I can sit and talk to you We'll share a cup of wine or two And I can be good to you She kissed me and then she said I want you to take me to the California line She turned my head around like California wine Then she smiled at me and put her hand in mine And poured another cup of wine Sweet California wine Chased a fading sun and watched the shadows falling. And as we sipped the wine, I heard California calling. Then she whispered in my ear, and it became very clear. I shifted into second gear. I kissed her, and then I said, I'm gonna take you to the California line. She turned my head around like California wine And then she smiled at me and put her hand in mine And poured another cup of wine California wine You know, I, that, that's one of the one of the good things about not being able to read music. I, I wish I could read music, but I... Sometimes it helps not to. 
Now, there's a song that also has an amazing piano riff throughout, and it happens to be my personal favorite Bobby Goldsboro tune. It's Summer the First Time. And we had a chance to talk to another great guy just a couple of weeks ago, Gary Puckett, who penned a song called Young Girl. And I would imagine that you ran into some similar controversies because of the content. I did. As a matter of fact, when I wrote that, I tried, I said, well, it's a song about a, a younger man and an older woman, which hasn't really been written about. And so I tried to write it in a way that nobody was going to think it was too risque and all that, but it actually, a lot of radio stations said it was too risque at the time. And now, I mean, you could play it on the Disney Channel now, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it, at the time it wasn't, uh, you know, it was considered a little bit risque, but... Uh, that was that to this day is my favorite record that I ever made because I got to I'll never forget I walked in after we finally I got you know spent so much time getting the 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 uh, waves and the seagulls before the music even came in and that and then the during the instrumental the big waves crashing and things like that I went in and played it for the uh, head of the record company and it was four it was uh, I think it was three minutes and something right at four minutes long and he said. He said, I love it, I love it. Now, we'll take that intro out, we'll take that instrumental out in the middle, and we'll cut it down to 259, and we get more airplay. I said, you can't do that. I said, that's like taking a, a novel, you say, I love this book, let's take out chapter 1 and chapter 11, shorten the book. Well, it messes it up, and I convinced him not to do that, to leave it like it was, and I'm so glad he didn't mess it up. It was a hot afternoon, the last day of June, and the sun was a demon. Clouds were afraid, one tin in the shade, and the pavement was steaming. I told Billy Ray, in his red Chevrolet, I needed time for some thinking. I was just walking by, when I looked in her eyes. And I swore it was winking She was 31 And I was 17 I knew nothing about love She knew everything But I sat down beside her On a front porch swing Wondered what the coming night would bring Sun closed her eyes as it climbed in the skies and it started to swelter. Sweat trickled down the front of her gown and I thought it would melt her. She threw back her hair like I wasn't there and she sipped on a her shoulders were bare And I tried not to stay When I looked at her too When she looked at me I heard her softly say I know you're young You don't know what to do or say Stay with me until the sun has gone away And I will chase the boy in you away 
and she smiled. Then we talked for a while. Then we walked for a mile to the sea. We sat on the sand, and the boy took her hand. But I saw the sunrise as a man. Gone by since I looked in her eye, but the memory lingers. I go back in my mind to the very first time I feel the touch of her fingers. Was a hot afternoon, the last day of June, and the sun was a yeah, because of the elements you mentioned, yeah. the piano riff, the music, everything was exactly the right note, all of the sound effects. It is certainly your musical masterpiece, and I'm, I'm sure that every artist wishes they had just one, and you can certainly point to several, and you and I share a favorite, and I'm glad of that. Well, I appreciate that. That's uh, It's nice to hear somebody that... Uh that agrees with me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and you've kind of answered the other question that Rick and I always had. We always talked about the true genius of, of music writing was, how to, you know, who thought to put that tambourine right there, or as you say, the, the sound effect and things like that. Now, in, in your case, as you're writing the song, are you, are you hearing all this in your head? I mean, the, the whole thing, or do you actually get to the studio well, and say, well... That, that, and yes, I do hear all that, because to me, that's, one, that's the way sometimes I would phrase a certain line... Mm. If you if you hold a, a note, well then that you're going to cover up maybe a little uh, little symbol thing that you're doing or a little uh, little piano note that and so I would try to try to phrase the line so that then you come in with that little ding you know little things like that. To me, that's part of the not part of the arrangement. It's part of the song when I write it. Uh, somebody else may say, well, that's the arranger would have done it differently. Or to, well, to me, when I write the song, I'm I'm arranging it at the same time because I'm. I'm uh, phrasing phrasing certain uh, the way I say certain lyrics around the way maybe a violin line is going to come in under it or something. It's amazing how a, uh, the success of a song teeters on whether it's a <laughs> rim shot or somebody said, "Hey, let's just put a coronet right there." And then when yeah. you listen to these songs, you say, "What if they hadn't done yeah. that? How less special <laughs> would this song have been? Or maybe we'd have never even heard it." It's just amazing that so many elements, these tiny factors, go into making a success. And we might not have even been graced with that uh, musical genius. That's true. And, uh, you know, somebody that I think hopefully influenced me was Burt Bacharach. I think when, I, when Burt Bacharach started coming out with the, with the Dionne Warwick things and the, and the things he was producing, they were so unique and so, so many different chord changes that uh, rock and roll had not, and pop music had not really been introduced to till Bacharach started doing some of those things. And things like uh, some of the things he would do, and, and all of a sudden he'd have a trombone, little short trombone notes playing the lead instrumental thing that nobody had done. Usually it was a guitar or, or a saxophone, and all of a sudden he had a, a little trombone thing doing, and, and it just had a certain sound, and, and uh, what the world needs now is love, the instrumental part on that. 
was not something you expected. And, it, and to me, that was one of the things you you can hear that, and you you remember it better than if you were listening to the lyrics to it. You know, mm-hmm. that's so. The arrangement and, and the instrumentation, I think, is is as important as anything to a record. Your your image, Bobby, was was as you know the boy next door and and, and, a, and a clean cut guy, good looking guy as, as you were. Uh, but you're in a in a time in music, especially the '60s, early '70s, where the culture uh, counterculture is coming up and things like that too. Um, talk to us maybe about was uh, obviously it worked for you. You are who you are, I guess. Uh, but talk to us about coming up in that time. Was there pressure for you to change at all? Well, I don't think there was that much pressure for me to change, but but what's what is funny to me is VH1, a friend of mine out in California called and said, "Did you see the VH1 special last night?" And I said, "No." He said it was on 1968, and it's all about the turmoil and the everything going on in the United States. And they, he said, they never played Honey, and it was the largest selling record in the world in 1968. And I said, "Well, it didn't fit their what they were show, trying to show on TV, so they just." <laughs> just left it out <laughs> you know they had they, they put in uh jefferson airplane and all these people they showed all the you know the how the big the hippie movement and the the turmoil and and uh, the war war against the war and things like that and to put honey in there somewhere just wouldn't have fit so right. that's it's, it's funny that 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 the the year of 1968 honey was the largest selling regular in the world and you never hear about it simply sure. because People remember it from the time of, you know, with all the uh, political unrest in the country. A couple of songs here that, that uh, made you uh, not necessarily a millionaire, but maybe did. It, it's called The Millionaires Club. Uh, radio played uh, a million, uh, these songs a million times with pen in hand mm-hmm. and also Autumn of, uh, of My Life. Um, let's right. take uh, pen in hand. Now, that was actually written as a result of uh, what your friendship with Roger Miller, who was going through a tough time, right? Yeah, and uh, I I used to just say it with a friend of mine. I would never mention his name. But Roger passed away, and I knowing Roger, he didn't like for me to talk about him. Yeah. Uh, he was Roger was a close friend, and uh, Roger had become such a huge star overnight, and had a television series and all this. And then, and I would go out to L.A. to do American Bandstand and shows like that, and I would stay with Roger at his house, and he had bought a bought the house formerly owned by Clint Walker, who was a uh, the big television star in the fifties with uh, Cheyenne. The TV show Cheyenne, and anyway, he Roger had this huge home with electric gates, and I'd never, I'd never seen an electric gate, and I thought, man, this is something. And uh, so Roger was a good friend, and one day I was talking to him, and he mentioned he was getting divorced, and I thought, I mean, I knew his wife, and I was, I mean, I was just shocked. And that that night, I had to drive from Dothan, Alabama, up to Nashville, and I was in, I had was just thinking about that, and I got started getting this idea for a song, and I got in a rainstorm near. Um, Huntsville, Alabama, and it was raining so hard I couldn't see the road, so I just pulled off the road, got in the back seat, and got my guitar out, and I wrote with pen in hand. It was about, you know, not um, started out about Roger is getting divorced, but I started thinking about, you know, what people go through, and uh, so that's how I came up with the idea. Now, did Roger ever know that it was about him? Uh, I never told him. Uh, okay. So uh, well, that was uh, that was that was neat. Uh, Blue uh, Blue Autumn uh, came up. That's another one of the the the, uh, the big songs for you too. Uh, can you tell us a brief story about that? Well, Blue Autumn. I was in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I was in a blizzard. I was I was up there to do some uh, radio and a TV local TV show, and I was back at the hotel and I looked out the window. It was like a blizzard, and I said, "Well, I was going to go out and get dinner, but I guess I'll just stay in the room." And I got the guitar out. <laughs> And for some reason, I came up with this song title, Blue Autumn, and I wrote the song. Now, here I am in a blizzard writing about a, a colorful autumn, you know, so, 
you know, I've got a weird mind. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of speaking of winter, you're uh, you know I don't want to dwell on a on a bad thing here, but your career almost ended before it began. You had a quite a harrowing uh, airplane ride. Can you tell the listeners about that? That was in also in Pennsylvania, out of Pittsburgh. In fact, the same station that I had done the uh, promotion with that night when I wrote Blue Autumn, I'd gone back up and did, did uh, to do a rec- some record. We were doing record hops then. Uh-huh. Remember record hops? Sure. <laughs> that's, where, that's where you you, know, you go out and you lip sync a record, and, and then you jump in the car and you drive across town and you do another record hop to another group of, of people and uh, trying to promote your record. That's the way it was done. And we were, I was on a, it was Lou Christie, myself, and Diane Renee, who had uh, Blue Navy Blue. The three of us were going to fly down to uh, to Wheeling, West Virginia, to do a record hop. Well, I guess Wheeling is not that far from Pittsburgh. And I didn't. We were driving out to the airport, and it is snowing. It was like a blizzard. And I'm thinking, well, I know we're probably not going to get on a plane in this kind of weather. And we get to the airport and looked out, and there were these a few little planes sitting there. I'm thinking, well, thank goodness we're not getting on one of those things. <laughs> and we go heading over there. With the, it was a disc jockey and his, uh, and it was two disc jockeys, one on the plane. Clark Race and uh, Bob Tracy were their names. Uh-huh. So we're going over to the, and all of a sudden they open up the door to this little, one little propeller job that didn't look like it was room for one person, much less five to get on this thing. <laughs> and And I'm, I'm, I, you know, nowadays I would say, no way, guys, I'm, I'm going to have to pass. But I, back then I said, well, if, if I don't get on the plane, they won't play my record. <laughs> you know? So I didn't have the sense enough to know I may die. So I got on this plane. I got in the very back because there wasn't a seat. And I'm just sitting back there, you know, hunched up with, with blankets around me. And Diane and, and, and Lou sit in the two seats ahead of me and then the pilot and co-pilot. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was the tiniest little plane I've ever seen. And we got up in the air, and we weren't in the air 15 minutes when uh, I hear all this May Day stuff, and I can't really hear this much engine noise and what was happening. And, again, I won't take too long to tell you the story. The, the oil line had burst on a plane, and we were coming down without wanting to. We were already coming down <laughs> into the mountains and the, all of this in, in West Virginia. And we made it to a, a little tiny airport, probably 30 miles from Wheeling, and we came in, the plane came down under, I mean, without him wanting to, we made it to the end of the landing strip and bounced around this airport and, and made it, you know, across the grass and up and stopped right up by the little terminal, which was a little, looked like a shed. Mm-hmm. And we made it down. And then when they ended up calling cabs and we went from there in taxis down to Wheeling and still did the record hop. Wow. <laughs> the it, whole time I'm thinking, well, I wonder who's going to get top billing in the paper tomorrow. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah you don't want to go uh, down was, with was, Buddy Holly. Yeah, yeah you know he's going to get all the press. I've ever spent, but uh, uh, but it was uh, something to remember. <laughs> sure Talking again, of course, to Bobby Goldsboro, and you've written a lot of very upbeat songs, but you've also created a lot of content that talks about the real human condition, people dying, divorce, children dying. And because of that, when people meet you for the first time, they obviously assume that these things have all happened to you personally. Do they think that you've had some miserable, sad life? <laughs> well, it's, it's funny. I, I, I do get people that ask about this to this day. Even on stage, I talk about Honey being written by Bobby Russell. I still hear stories. In fact, I was when Honey was was number one out there, and every time I turned the radio on, it was on. I heard uh, a guy say, "We've had so many calls wanting to know uh, who the song was about," and the guy says, "And we found out it's a fact. Bobby wrote it about his mother." 
And I'm thinking, wait a minute, my mother's still alive. She's she's 90 years old. I didn't, and I didn't write the song. I don't know where these things come from. But so many people will think that it was about my wife. Well, my wife is fine. We're you know we're together. We've we haven't spent a night apart ever, so uh, I don't know. A lot of these, uh, a lot of people think if you sing a song about about somebody dying, then that happened to you, you know. But yeah. uh, I don't know. I, I also get asked about some of the first time was I the young guy <laughs> and, <laughs> with the older woman, yeah. and I say it's none of your business. None of your business. <laughs> <laughs> good answer. Good answer. Uh, the TV show comes uh, comes around too in the early 1970s, so you get a chance to uh, take a very very popular TV show for you. Yeah, it was. It was uh, when they asked me to do the show. I I said, well. If I don't have to be like a young Ed Sullivan and just stand there and bring on six or eight people a show, I'd, if I can, you know, get to sing with the guests, just have one guest, let them do a couple of songs, and I'll do a couple of songs and have a little comedy on the show. I said I might enjoy doing that, but anything else, I I just don't care to do it. So we did the show and filmed it at CBS in Hollywood, and we alternated with Sonny and Cher, the same crew, the same stage. I just had my set come out, and then they they would take that off, and their sets would come out. And I would film on, they filmed on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and I finished filming on uh, Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. Mm-hmm. And we did it for three years, and it was, uh, we had our highest ratings after the third year. But I, 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 at the end of the third year, I, I realized I wasn't getting to write songs anymore. I was because we were spending so much time on the TV show and mm-hmm. preparing for the next next set of shows and booking guests and things like that. And between that and concerts, I wasn't getting to write anymore, so I decided to just stop doing the show because it was uh, taking so much time away from everything else. And then you retire from performing uh, in the in the 1980s uh, after, a, like I said, a nice run in the, the country uh, charts. You, you have uh, quite a few hits over, over on that side. Um, and then you get into uh, writing uh, children's books and music for, for that. How does that all come about, Bobby? Well, I had written, uh, I had written several, the first children's book I wrote was actually in 1969, but I never did anything with them. Until the 81, I came up with an idea for, uh, I, I did a, a four animated uh, specials for the Disney Channel that I wrote and produced. And uh, after, and they were very successful. One, the Easter show ran for 11 years on the Disney Channel. It was their highest rated uh, and longest running Easter show they've ever had. And uh, But I, after doing those, having to, with animation, you have to send things off. You don't see it for three months. And when it comes back from Taiwan or China, where... Uh, the animation, if it's not what you want, you either redo it or you just accept it. So I wanted to do something where I could see what I was getting, a live action series, and, and it took me about seven years to complete it, but it was uh, it's called The Swamp Critters of Lost Lagoon, and we've been on PBS, the Learning Channel. Uh, we're on uh, uh, Dish Network. We're all over the in several foreign countries with the show, and we did. I ended up doing 52 half-hour episodes, and I wrote like 100-and-something songs for the series, and I... The voices for all the characters who played all the instruments, so that's why it took so long to do this thing. But it's it's the longest, it's the most work I ever did in my life, but it's the most fun I've ever had. So now I've got a children's series that's out there, and uh, and I've got into art. Yeah, <laughs> Let, let's talk about that. You are an oil painter, so uh, as if you haven't had enough things going in your life, uh, how does that come about? Well, I I back in high school, I even I remember a time that I thought one day I might like to try oil painting there was something about it just intrigued me and then i got into music and just never tried it because i i'd never tried even attempted to oil paint 
And over the years, my wife and I would, after I'd do a concert, we'd go to a museum or a ge- art galleries, and I would look at the paintings, and I would say, you know, I'd, I'd really think I could do that. I would like to do that. And she, my wife would say, well, you keep saying it. When are you going to do it? And finally I said, when I turn 65, I'll start oil painting. <laughs> well, five years ago I turned 65, and the day I did, I I went and bought canvases, paints, brushes, everything, and I, I went at it. And uh, it's become uh, the greatest joy to, to me right now, I, I'm, I'm painting every day. In fact, before I made this call this morning, I was painting. <laughs> wow. And after I hang up, I will be painting again. <laughs> but uh, I, I've just been amazed at the reaction to the paintings. I've done I've done nine art shows now in the last two years. I only started selling the paintings uh, like three years ago, and we've sold, I've done 80, I think 81 paintings, and we've already sold, I think, 59 of the originals, and we've sold several hundred uh, prints on canvas. So. It's just been phenomenal, and I'm, I just absolutely love it. And I'm learning something every time I paint one. And we've got several art shows lined up for the next several months, and uh, so I'm just enjoying my life. And, and the great thing is now that I'm doing, uh, this will be the third time I'm doing a thing at the Sonoran Desert Museum next March, and I'm doing a, con- a private concert, and then and then we do the art show about an hour later. And uh, I did a, I did a thing in St. Louis, uh, St. Charles. Missouri back in February, an art show, a concert, and the next day we did the art show. And I've done it three times now, and it's been usually successful, so I'm going to start doing some more of those things. I know that you've had some high-profile corporate clients to make large purchases, so they certainly think a lot of your talents. If our listeners would like to view some of your work, is there a website where they can do so? Yeah, you just go to bobbygoldsborough.com. And it's I've got a, easy. all the artwork. You can see all the artwork. You can click on the one that you, if you see something you like, you click on it, and it brings up a big picture of it, and it gives you all the dimensions and the price and tells about the paintings. And, uh, and so it's, it's uh, in fact, the, the the website is probably 90% my, my artwork now. I mean, you can buy the CDs, greatest hits, things like that, and DVDs, but... The artwork is, is the predominant thing on the website. Just go to bobbygoldsboro.com. Isn't that something? I mean, the, the Internet, who would have thought? I mean, you know, we, <laughs> I, I, I can get around a computer all right, uh, but, uh, you know, back in the day, you know, 1960s, uh, there, there was no Internet, and, and you wouldn't have known, uh, you know, what was going on with that. But, boy, that has really changed our life in a lot of ways, hasn't it? You know, and, and I was... I had to be brought, as they say, kicking and screaming into the <laughs> <laughs> into the the internet because I I couldn't see any point in me. Why would I? Why do I want a computer? Nobody could tell me, could give me a good reason. And now I can't live without one because of the website and the artwork and and uploading uh, photographs of the paintings and 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 things like that. So and I'm I have it with me every time we go on the road. I can do so much. I, it's like having a traveling office. So. I, I finally uh, accepted it, and now I, I can. Uh, I don't. I, I still hate the computer, but I but I live with it. <laughs> and are you still writing music at all as we speak here in, in the, the the vast amount of spare time <laughs> that you have with all the other stuff you got going on? Well, I do. I just uh, I've, I've had to. I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, French singer, and I'm the worst to try to pronounce this. Muriel Mathieu. Uh, Mith- Mathieu. I can't say it. But uh-huh. anyway, she's like the Barbara Streisand of France. She's okay. been big over there for, for 30 years. And she had a big, she had a number one record with a song of mine, gosh, 25, 30 years ago. And she, uh, a couple of years ago, they contacted me and wanted to know if I had any new material. So I sent three songs over, and she recorded all three of them. And she did them in three different albums, with, uh, and did them in German, uh, French, and, and English. And they became big hits over there, and uh, she had a huge CD over there. And, and uh, so that was something that I had, again, those are the things like being uh, walking in to buy a shirt, and you 
satisfying watching Scotty grow. That's that was <laughs> that was one of those <laughs> moments again that I've just I've just been blessed to be at the right. I happen to if I had not been home that day when they called, I. I wouldn't have gotten those songs recorded, probably. Well, getting to meet you, Bobby, yeah. it's obvious from the that there's joy in your voice. It certainly sounds as though you feel you've had a very blessed life. And, and I could only wish that I could share a cup of coffee with that group of friends that you've had over the years. Yeah. can only imagine the laughs and the great stories from a Roger Miller, a Mac Davis, a Ray Stevens, a Roy Orbison, and a Bobby Goldsboro all together. And we're so glad we could share some time with you. It's been my pleasure, and we'll, we'll do it again. You knew I could not stay for long when you'd ask me to come over in the wee hours of the morning. I said I could not let the sunrise catch me sleeping, and that is why I've given you fair warning. And though you might have loved me like I never, ever have been loved before, your front door is open and I've got to keep on so I will stay with you a while And then I'll let my hitchhike thumb Take me to where I wanna Because I've got to keep on searching For the dream that I've been seeking Since I left my Oklahoma And who's to say but that I might be back tomorrow If I find there's only sorrow You may see me from your windowsill Next morning, I'm a drifter, and I've seen rain. I'm a drifter, and I've felt the pain, the pain that comes with loneliness. So I drift from town to town, searching all around, looking for the answer to my sorrow. And if the answer is you, then I'll be back tomorrow Let's make the most of time before the break of day But don't try to make me stay if I don't want to Because I've got to keep on searching for that dream And you can't find me with the simple words I love you if I realize the dream that I've been searching for Is waiting here behind your door Then I'll come back to stay If you still want me to I'm a drifter And I've seen the rain I'm a drifter And I've felt the pain The pain that comes with loneliness So I drift from town to town Searching all around Looking for the answer to my sorrow And if the answer is you Then I'll be back tomorrow I'm a drifter 